Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Today, I'm excited to welcome back into the studio, Stacy, my beloved and partner and co-host of Trashy Divorces for a really good story today. Welcome. Hello, Dunners. It's nice to talk to you again. You had so much fun last week. You just wandered down the hall. Yeah, this one, I don't, I don't know if this one's appropriate for as many jokes, but we'll see. Less jokes, but really good. It, I know that you like the stories mm-hmm. that intersect politics, mm-hmm. and this is one of them. So y'all, I've been at work for a while on a different series about Palm Beach and the Kennedys, and it's pretty far-reaching, but I stumbled across one paragraph from an otherwise very long Vanity Fair piece of Dominic's. This is from Damage that Dominic published in October of 1991, working on something totally different and came across this one paragraph and was like, yes, I can talk about one of the most fascinating women of the 20th century, as well as her mysterious death, which I know you like less. Who doesn't love a good mysterious death? You'd love Done and Done Save the True Crime. That's not really your thing, but it does involve politics mm-hmm. and it is a long ago true crime. Which and it is a mystery. It is a mystery. And there are lots of conspiracy theories that in this case, maybe more correct than the official version. So Dominic did very little writing on this case. I didn't know he had done any. So I stumble across this paragraph. His original piece is about Palm Beach and William Kennedy Smith and Ted Kennedy, and it does get into Martha Moxley. There's just one paragraph as the William Kennedy Smith trial is happening that Dunn will write, quote, two unresolved and long dormant murders peripherally touching the family or even resuscitated. The first was that of Mary Pinchot Meyer, a wealthy society beauty known to have introduced President Kennedy to marijuana in the White House during their two-year affair and joked about being high when it was time to push the nuclear button. A year after the president's assassination, Meyer was murdered in Georgetown with two shots fired within eight seconds. A young black Raymond Crump Jr. was arrested and tried for her murder and acquitted. The case was not reopened. In a forthcoming book on the case, Leo Damore, the author of Senatorial Privilege, advances the theory that Mary Meyer's death may have been an ordered hit to prevent her affair with the president from becoming public. So Leo Damore gets into all this research. We're going to talk about another author, Peter Janney. He grows up with Mary Pinchot Meyer's son, who dies tragically. He's written a book. There's been another book by Nina Burley called A Very Private Woman. I have all of the links that you can find on Done and Done, any sources for this, but I'm excited to be able to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, let me just say that stylistically, I'm glad that writers tend not to use the phrasing a young black. Anymore. Yes. Yeah. It's funny. Like that... Otherwise, that passage doesn't feel dated, but that passage made it feel dated. There are dated. some things like mm-hmm. 30 years ago yeah. that he writes this about the Kennedys and sure. all of the stuff going on at that time, which is different in the fullness of time, Indeed. so to speak. So Mary Pinchot Meyer, fascinating woman, talented artist, mysterious murder. She was born October 14th, 1920. 
She's the eldest of two kids. She has a sister whose name is Tony. Dad is Amos Pinchot. He's a big-time wealthy lawyer. He's a key figure in the Progressive Party. He will help fund a socialist magazine called The Masses. Ruth Pinchot, her mom, is his second wife, and she's a journalist. She writes for The Nation and The New Republic. So these are lefties. These are way, way, way lefties. All right. Yeah. Mary's uncle is the governor of Pennsylvania. His name is Gifford Pinchot. Just a few fun facts here about old Gifford. He becomes the head of the forestry division in 1898 under Teddy Roosevelt, is named chief forester of the redefined U.S. Forest Service. It's all under National Forest Management is under his purview. Interesting. And this was a time when, like, TR created the parks, right? Mm -hmm. And Pinchot's principal, this is in her family, uh, Pinchot's principal is used to guide Forest Service management. Pinchot's principal states the greatest good of the greatest number in the long run. Socialism. Prevalent thought. (laughs) So the Pinchot's connected, political, loaded with cash. Mary will attend Brerley School, where she will meet William Atwood in 1935. He goes on to Choate. There's a dance. The next year, in 1936 at Choate, and a young freshman in college, John Kennedy, goes back to his alma mater, Choate, to pick up on the high school chicks. And Mary Pinchot and JFK will meet in 1936 for the first time. Not a lot of interest romantically during that meeting she sees right through him she's like not interested dude you don't even go here (laughs) i mean you don't even go here why are you here trying to pick up high school girls Uh this is dumb Uh mary's gonna go on to vassar college she gets interested in communism she'll graduate in 1942 and become a journalist like her mom she will write for the united press as well as mademoiselle she becomes a member of the American Labor Party, which will promptly get her noticed by the FBI. Hmm. But she's young and she's smart and she's curious and she's writing and she's taking on the world. So let's enter her dirtbag ex-husband named Cord Meyer. Cord Meyer is a Marine Corps lieutenant. They meet in 1944. He has lost his left eye in combat. They'll marry in April 1945, and he is an aide at the UN at that time, and she's a reporter. She'll go on to edit for Atlantic Monthly. They have three kids, the first in November 1945. So probably in April when they got married, she might have been a little pregnant for Mm -hmm. the spring wedding. Mm -hmm. Another son in 1947. This is Peter Janney's childhood best friend growing up. Peter Janney's mom and Mary go to Vassar together. Peter Janney's dad is also in the CIA where Cord Meyer's about to land. Who's Peter Janney? Peter Janney writes the book Mary's Mosaic. Gotcha. Where all of this okay. sourcing has come from. Gotcha. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm sorry I did not clear. I get excited when You're, I tell I, a story. Just catching me up. This child, Michael, dies when he's nine. So Mary, now a homemaker, three kids. She's still attending some classes. She's an artist as well. She's a really, really talented painter. Okay, but 1947 for her husband. It's a big year for Cord Meyer. He's going to become president of the United World Federalist 
Society in May, and membership doubles. They have another kid in 1950. They move to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the world is changing because Alan Dulles has come courting on old Cord Meyer and said, hey, you know, I started this super secret organization called the CIA back in uh, 1947. It's 1951 now. Do you want to join me? The agency. The agency does terrible things. The Myers moved to D.C. They're movers and shakers. They know every... I mean, she's politically connected and loaded anyway, but now he's got a cover job, but is in the CIA. Sure, works for the Social Security Administration, yeah. yeah. They know everybody. They get a little hung up in McCarthy's crap nonsense happening in 1953. They oh, wiggle why? Because of her long history of communism? <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's thinking maybe Cord needs a new gig. He's getting in deeper and deeper, and it's not good for her or the family, and his drinking is escalating, and Cord is really violent when he drinks. Everything is terrible inside the walls of the home, but on the surface, everything's fine. By the summer of 1954, old Cordy is running Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, managing millions of U.S. dollar bills to support progressively seeming organizations on a global scale. They also have new neighbors, John and Jacqueline Kennedy. Interesting. In 1954. Again, repetition here. Be careful of your couple friends. But they are all couple friends and it's great because Vassar girls stick together. And Mary's friend, Cecily, from college... Married this guy named James Jesus Angleton. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And her sister Tony, Mary's sister Tony, will marry the bureau chief of Newsweek at the time, whose name is Ben Bradley. Mm. Okay. Lots of powerful players in this couple mix. Okay. Also, they know the Jannies. So Mrs. Jannie is a Vassar girl as well. They have the son, Peter, who is BFFs with Mary's second child, Michael. That child will die December 1956, hit by a car. It's terrible. And as bad as the marriage is, they're still playing that everything is okay until this accident. And it is the yeah. it is the straw that right. will collapse yeah. this marriage. And Mary and Cord will divorce in 1958. They go to Nevada. For a little bit of a divorce. Nevada, I think you mean. Oh, pardon me. Nevada is right. Mm -hmm. After the divorce is granted, Mary's going to head on out to California for a little girl's vacay, a little R&R, a little break, maybe some LSD therapy too, to process the loss of her child. What a time to be alive. And the marriage. Because people are doing LSD therapy Mm -hmm. back then and That's pretty fun, but she comes back to D.C. and she's a color painter. She's less known than some of the other color artist counterparts that are working in D.C. at that time, but her work is amazing. And she is working with all of these people in the city to make her art happen. And like D.C. is super close-knit and super gossipy. And her sister is the wife of the Newsweek bureau chief. Like she, She is very well connected. Is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. She's in the thick of it. Mary will move back to Georgetown with her two kids. And her sister and Ben are in Georgetown, too. And they have this nice little converted garage studio that she'll use to paint in. Hey, do you, like, 
I don't have a place in my spot. Mm-hmm. I would love to have a separate studio space. Mm-hmm. And her sister's like, of course. Use our garage. Use our garage. It can be your studio. Here's a key. Come and go as you please. We like for the neighbors to see our fancy cars so we don't park them in the garage. <laughs> I mean, her, she's super into the color school and her art really is amazing and quite lovely. Oh, now she's friends with Bobby Kennedy, who is now bought, this attaches to our story from Sunday on Trashy Divorces, Hickory Hill from oh, sure. John and Jacqueline, In who owned Fairfax, Virginia. McLean. McLean, okay. Virginia, who owned Hickory Hill, who sold it to Bobby and Ethel for their sure. impending brood of children. Nina Burley, the author of A Very Private Woman, we mentioned her in the beginning, will write that after her divorce, Mary Meyer became a well-bred ingenue out looking for fun and getting in trouble along the way. Also, her ex-husband, Cord Meyer, is kind of a jerk. And the CIA has Mary under watch from this time onward. James Jesus Angleton, family friend, comes on over. I'll help. Be kind of a surrogate dad for your boys. I'll take them out for ice cream. And while I'm here, I'll keep tabs on you. Plant bugs in your house. Like it, mm-hmm. It's all creepy. Mm-hmm. But Mary. We like to think those abuses do not persist to this day, but. Hmm. Mary doesn't know this. She doesn't know she's being watched. She doesn't know she's being studied. She's a single woman out. Having a good time, living my pretty terrific life. What is an intrusive government to do if you don't have email? (laughs) Well, it's 1960 and everything's going okay. Divorce is done, LSD therapy. I'm in the color school. I got my own studio. Things are rocking. Oh, looky there. My old neighbor, Jack Kennedy, is running for president. Their affair is heating up sometime within 1960. It is going to be on full throttle by 1961. Jack Kennedy has a lot of action. I was going to say, in defense, I'm not sure who's. Jack Kennedy had a lot of action. A lot of action. He says, (laughs) appears to live a life in which he's getting laid three times a day. Yeah. Because Dr. Feelgood has him amped up on all the amphetamines for, I mean... Legit medical condition, his back and Mm -hmm. all of the war stuff, but yikes. So his health is already compromised. Still getting laid three times a day, but Mary isn't like just the normal lay. She's different. She's not a regular girl. As soon as Jacqueline is out of the White House, Mary's into the White House. Jacqueline at the time will lose a child. She goes on Onassis's boat. We've... Mm -hmm. Done. All of these stories are so interconnected and so adjacent, which is just, I love it all. But when Jacqueline is not in the White House, Mary Pinchot's there. Mary's the one that Jack calls when he needs comfort. He'll call her after the shooting of Medgar Evers. She's his his go-to. He respects her more than he's respected any other woman. She's different. She doesn't need anything from him. She doesn't need his money or connections or, like, I'm here because I like you, right? So they have a more grown-up relationship than most of, like, there was staff at the White House to remove blonde hairs Mm -hmm. from the presidential bed. Those were her hairs. So that Jacqueline Mm -hmm. would not see them. Right. 
Mary Pinchot is probably his most significant okay. mistress, or- mistress side piece, whatever you want to call it throughout mm-hmm. this time. But again, she doesn't need anything from him. She doesn't need money. She doesn't need cachet. Also, she can provide him a whole new world of experience. And can provide to us in our country, it's her patriotic duty, a kinder, gentler Kennedy. This is done with marijuana? This is done with marijuana and LSD together. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. The Cold War, right? Switches. Now it becomes peace talks. We're going to the moon. Alice? Like, she she makes him... No, wait until you hear about this whole group of women microdosing the political leaders in Washington, D.C. It's extraordinary. Okay. In a 2008 interview, Peter Janney, who wrote the book Mary's Mosaic, will emphasize the serious nature of this romance with Jack Kennedy. He says this was a dangerous relationship. Jack was in love with Mary Meyer. He was certainly smitten with her. He was heavily smitten. He was very frank with me about it. This is Charles Bartlett talking about this. Mary Myers, a guest at an intimate party hosted by Jacqueline, in honor of the president, aboard the Yacht Sequoia. Oh, hey. oh, we love presidential yachts. A lot of throwbacks here. A lot of throwbacks. On his 46th and last birthday, May 29th, 1963. Okay, so up for auction in 2016 was a four-page letter that Jack had written Mary. It comes up for auction not too long ago, sold for $89,000. This four-page letter, White House stationery, one month before his assassination. Jack will write to Mary, begging her, like, please, come join me for a tryst. Letters unsent, written on White House stationery. Evelyn Lincoln, Kennedy's personal secretary, retains it. It reads in part, Why don't you leave suburbia for once? Come and see me, either here or at the Cape next week or in Boston on the 19th. I know it is unwise, irrational, and that you may hate it. On the other hand, you may not, and I will love it. You say that it's good for me not to get what I want. After all these years, you should give me more loving answer than that. Why don't you just say yes? And the letter is signed simply J. November 22nd, 1963, JFK is assassinated. Mary, along with the rest of the world, is in shock and horror and grief. And this is not just the president. This is her lover. This, he's the man that a lot of his closest advisors think that he's trying to find a way to divorce Jacqueline so he can marry Mary. Say that five times fast. Mm -hmm. I will say, um, I feel that there are really good odds that had Kennedy survived and, you know, there was no assassination, I do think he and Jacqueline would have ended up splitting. 100%. I can't. Yeah. It's not like she was happy in this dumb marriage. Okay. I mean, they, so sideline for Jack, Jacqueline reminded him very much of his sister Kick Kennedy who he really liked. They had a very similar aesthetic humor. There was something very comforting that Jack got in Jacqueline. Besides, she's utterly the perfect package for what he needs. Yes. And so he cheated on her with great vigor. Routinely. Great vigor. Okay. So after his assassination, all of Jack's aides know how much Mary has been around the White House and was part of policy. She's still visiting the White House. 
dinner, drinks. She's hanging out with his aides. They're smoking marijuana cigarettes. She doesn't really like cocaine. He doesn't really like, Jack didn't really like cocaine, but marijuana? Yeah. So Mary, through all of her time going to the White House and all of the time after, is keeping, everybody's favorite word around here, a secret diary. There's a lot of conflicting stories about the secret diary, and it's going to become a big deal 11 months after Jack's assassination when she is murdered. Quick interjection. Um, Mm -hmm. Would an adult living alone who keeps a diary technically be keeping a secret diary? Like, is it a secret diary or? It's a secret all through her relationship with Jack. It's a secret for the 11 months. It Well, it's a secret until the Warren Commission report comes out in September of 64. And by now, she's ready to go public with all of the things that she's correlated about Jack was absolutely assassinated by this government. And now they've been on a year-long quest to cover up. I guess I'm just curious. Like, I don't know. Secret diary seems maybe excessive. I mean, she's an adult who lives on her own and journals. It's a diary. Let's go back. Just super fast, though, and talk about Jack and Mary's love affair just a little bit more. It implies that there's a public diary, right? Anyway, I'm quibbling. Tell me more. What does the love affair with Mary and Jack have to do with Timothy Leary? Whoa. (laughs) Tune in, turn on, drop out. Okay, so Timothy Leary is going to be interviewed by Nina Burley, author of A Very Private Woman. He's like, yeah, Mary and I were good friends. We know each other from all of those California LSD trips. Mary tells uh, Timothy Leary that she is taking part in a plan to avert worldwide nuclear war by convincing powerful male members of the Washington establishment to take mind-altering drugs, which presumably leads them to conclude that the Cold War is meaningless and we really should be into peace talks. Mary and all of her friends, this is a new kind of ladies club. This whole women's gang, she's at least with seven other D.C. socialite friends. Oh, my God. And they are working together as a gang to microdose high-ranking government officials and set the stage and the trip so much so that she turns all of their ideas, this gang, to world peace. We don't need to fight. We don't need to be in the Cold War. Man, you wonder if there was like a sister group over in Moscow trying that too. I mean, it didn't work out well, but. (laughs) After Jack's assassination, Mary calls Timothy Leary a lot. Like, I can trust talk. You can't trust anybody. Right. Because your phone is bugged. But because the CIA is listening to, like, they know. Mm -hmm. They know what they've done. Uh They know Mary is a liability. It's just how long do we let you be a liability for? Your diary's secret for now. We know about your secret diary. But you don't think anybody else does. No, I'm certain that the CIA would be at that time monitoring, a, you know, an ongoing mistress of a president. Okay. So she'll call Timothy Leary and we'll say, like, talking about Jack, they couldn't control him anymore. He was changing too fast. They covered everything up. I got to come see you. I'm afraid. You need to be careful. Mary, suspicious, smart lady, has a growing sense that she is being watched. My phones are bugged. Someone's been getting in my house and going through my stuff. Now, James Jesus Angleton and his group have been (laughs) surveilling her for years now. 
And that will only increase as she begins to poke around asking questions about Jack's death. She's snooping around from November 63 to when the Warren Report is published. Because she's still, like every good American, the Warren Report is probably really going to make mm-hmm. sense of it all. And yeah. so she goes out and buys it the day it's available. We'll finally get a real accounting of what happened, yeah. Well, she's had a year mm-hmm. to essentially put together a narrative of what she knows is happening from the people who are all the movers and the shakers making it happen. And she's not an idiot. So she buys the Warren Report. It comes out September 24th, 1964. She's mad. She's like, this is the biggest load of bunk anybody has ever read. Seems to be a widely held view of that report. Three weeks later. It's Monday, October 12th. Starts out like any other day. Mary, terrified and mad and upset and what is becoming of this world, will head off with her little key in the morning to that converted garage studio to paint like she does every single day, walks down the street to her little art studio. Every day, she takes a walk at lunchtime. And this is Ben Bradley? This is Ben Bradley Mm -hmm. and his wife, Tony, whose sister is Mm -hmm. Mary's sister. So so a powerful media figure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's Monday afternoon in Georgetown. It is like the safest, toniest place in D.C. and the most mysterious crime in D.C. history, maybe. She goes on a walk by the, on the towpath, by the river, like she does every day. And there's a stranded motorist that will see a woman on the towpath. And the stranded motorist says, I saw a black guy, like usually 5'10". The cops span out on a search and will find a 25-year-old Ray Crump Jr. wet confused. He says he's wet because he lost his fishing pole in the water. They cannot find any kind of fishing pole around, but there is an empty whiskey bottle and an empty bag of potato chips. All of this is happening about 500 feet away from where Mary's body has been found. So this poor guy is in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong hangover. Cops find an ID in her pocket. They go to her house. She's not there. The neighbor's like, you probably should go see your sister, Tony, who lives down the block. She's Ben Bradley's wife, but Tony's not home. But funnily enough, Ben Bradley take a little siesta afternoon out of the Newsweek office. He is home. What do you mean? Mary's dead on the towpath, and now the scandal begins to happen. She's an aristocrat. She's a socialite. She's got ties to JFK. And her normal schedule is always painting in the morning, in the back converted garage cottage. And Ben will get a call from Mary's friend, Ann Truitt, who that afternoon, Mary asked me to take care of her diary. If anything happened to her, I need to get into your studio. And then Bradley's like, what secret diary? Hmm. And Ann Truitt's like, I I just, I really need to get in that studio. If mm-hmm. you could go ahead and let, because Mary's been talking to all of her like, yeah, her probably gang of women friends. Her coven. Like, if anything happens to me, here's the secret location of this. Ben Bradley, what secret diary? Okay, so the irony of this whole case is that the police are going to work to solve it without ever getting close to what the real story is. Because they're going to sling Ray Crump up on charges that are false. They're never allowed to get to know the victim because no one's going to tell anything cop anything about i mean this is the first place you start is like what is the victim who are they close to 
Cops get nowhere close to her. The family shuts down. Cord shuts down. Like it becomes a CIA operation. Cord who has been, yeah, surveilling her Mm -hmm. for years. Okay. Yeah. So either it's a random act of violence or a planned hit, right? They go to Ray Crump's house. (laughs) They uncover the missing fishing pole and tackle. And the cops think like, oh, we got an airtight case. We got a matching cap and a witness and lies from all these witnesses in the park who absolutely saw this happen. Crump's in jail. Same time this is happening, there's a desperate hunt for her secret diary. Ben shows up, like, thanks for letting me know, Anne. I'll go look for it. Who's in the converted garage studio apartment already? Jesus. Jesus Angleton is already there. And Angleton kind of shuffles in embarrassment. Uh, Oh, yeah, like, I'm just a real good friend of Mary's and I heard what happened. But, I mean, he's the major boss of the CIA. He was Cord's boss at one point, but... Oh, I've been coming to take the kids out for ice cream every Sunday for years. Of course, it's natural that I'm in her painting studio for no good reason. It's terrible. I'm not the chief of counterintelligence. What are you doing here? Well, I'm definitely not looking for the secret diary. Okay. Ben Bradley would say that first search is fruitless. Later in the day, once they get James Jesus Angleton out of there, Ben and... Tony go back, like, maybe it is in there. What do you know? They go back to look again. Who's at the door picking the lock to get back? Oh, it's James Jesus Jesus Angleton Angleton again. again. Does he go by James Jesus, by the way? I think he's James Jim Jim, but that's his nickname in the... Because he's all-knowing. He knows everything. Oh, that's his nickname, not his middle name? No, that's his nickname. Okay, when you introduced yeah, it, I no, was like, his James parents Angleton, did that? No, okay. his nickname in the CIA is Jesus. I'm okay. sorry. I should have. It's been a big day. Worked it out now. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was a real... I was thinking, like, are his parents, like, of Spanish extraction? And it's Jesus anyway. That makes more sense. It's a nickname. Yeah. You write that script and you can put... All sorts of things in there. Don't make any sense. Well, in addition to Jesus being one of his nicknames, his other nickname is Locksmith, James Angleton. Well, how else will you be all seeing? So now Ben and Tony are like, we've got to, you need to get out of here. And they go in and rip the entire place up. Ben Bradley will say he did find some papers. Ten pages had phrases and text. There were references to an affair with the president. There was a lot of art and color stuff, too. He has never revealed what he found in it. He was stunned by the revelation of Mary's affair. Now, he's married to her sister. He knows who exactly she's having an affair with. His sisters don't keep anything quiet. But, oh, I'm perfectly shocked by it. But then for some weird reason, he'll give the diary to James Angleton at the end of the day. Apparently. It is very odd behavior for a journalist, I have to say. At the age of 95 in his memoirs, Ben Bradley insists it was a private thing. There was not a tie in that secret diary to her murder. The poor DC cops. Also, I was going to say the DC cops would be, I mean, if you're just like, I'm a good citizen and I may have evidence, you take it to the people investigating the crime. No, the cops aren't even close to the crime. So every time it looks like the cops case I'm is just falling saying, apart. Is very weird behavior for a it's journalist. It's terrible. More witnesses will come forward. Oh, I was there. I saw that. Of course it was this. It's not. Okay. So the gentleman's agreement 
Like, Ben knows that they've had an affair. The press knows they've been having an affair. She's on the gate log. She signed under her, her own name. Mm-hmm. She's traveled like two dozen times to the White House when Jacqueline was traveling. Mm-hmm. Cops still going after Crump. And their working theory is that there was an attempted rape. She fights back and he shoots her to make her stop screaming. New witnesses. Oh, I saw her and the suspect and good Lord. So they bring in a defense attorney. Got to tell you about Dubby Roundtree, black female attorney in D.C. She's a powerful force. She goes and rips enormous holes in this case. Like she'll take the cases of black clients in front of judges that are white all the time and win. Like Dubby Roundtree strikes fear in the heart of prosecutors prosecutors everywhere. Excellent. So by the time, like she's done this for years and years. So by the time she gets a hold of Ray Crump's case, she's confident, right? Oh gosh. She's a seasoned attorney. She gets into court and here's Ray Crump and he's small and he's timid. And like his only crime before he served a little time for petty larceny. But at that time he was beaten badly in prison and he has a brain impairment And he's kind of tiny and timid and weak and vulnerable. And she's like, this isn't your guy. And she'll go out and walk each inch of that towpath, feel the terrain. She'll do reenactments. Like she's looking at the crime scene. And then she gets the feeling, Debbie Roundtree does, that she's being watched. She starts getting mysterious phone calls in the middle of the night where people just breathe real heavy and then hang up. It's disruptive to her household. Every time she goes to the towpath to do more research, there are phone calls that night. She's definitely, it's all shady. She's terrified, but she's going to stay on the case and it goes to trial. It's a big deal. Prosecution has their theory and Dubby's like, okay, show me what you got. She won't give an opening statement. You know, when the court opens and the prosecution's like, here's my opening statement. She doesn't. She's like, show me what you got, man. And they do. They have eyewitness accounts and their eyewitness accounts say the star witnesses, this guy was 5'8", 5'10". He was 185 pounds. And here's Dovey pointing to her defendant who's 5'3", and 130 pounds wet. Was this guy him? This is your 5'10", 200 pounder? Because she's walked every inch of that entire place, she knows that even though the cops say that they sealed all four exits within five minutes of the murder, she'll bring the map maker up of this area and she'll be like, okay, (laughs) the map maker who has made the map has never seen the area like in real life. So she's showing pictures like it's heavily wooded. There are hundreds of escapes. Like we closed all the exits. He couldn't have left. Come on. Like it's all bogus. The whole case essentially is bogus. You know, she's like, this is simply ludicrous to think that there's not one yeah. other exit than the four sidewalks out of here. Yeah, it's not it's not the interior of a castle. Her single exhibit is just his physical appearance. Could this guy have done this? I don't need to give you anything more than that. Like, you've heard all of this stuff. Was was Is this your guy? July 1965, found not guilty. Now, there's some people who still think he did it, but not anybody who really knows 
all of the connections in the CIA and the secret diary. And you think you get a pretty clear picture of it because he's not guilty here. And you think it's a hit job masterminded by like Cord Meyer and his CIA buddies. And there's James Jesus. Cord Meyer quits the CIA in 1977. He'll die in 2001. The bad thing with Ray Crump, though, is he will go on to commit rape and arson. So not great. It does leave some questions, but he wasn't guilty for this. Fairly confident. Do you have an explanation for this crime? CIA hit job. Natch. But why? (laughs) Because Mary was about to come out with, here's everything I found out. This Warren reporter's a bunch of crap. I like She was about to go public with her affair, everything that she had determined about how everyone was lying about his assassination. It's three weeks after the Warren report. She's just like, she's gathering all of her journalistic evidence to go to the press. And the CIA knows it because they're bugging her. They're watching her. So she was killed as part of the cover-up of the Kennedy assassination is your supposition? Yes, that is my supposition. One of many and many and many people killed to keep that dirty, dirty secret. Well, I think we can have real confidence that the U.S. government would never do things like that today. Most certainly not. (laughs) Most certainly not. I do have one other fun spiderweb because you can't talk about this story without talking about how it connects to a whole different new layer. Of trash candy. Okay. So Ben Bradley, who cannot keep his secret diary story straight, tells it five ways to Sunday, but that's not this bit. Mary's sister, Tony, passes away in 1975. Ben Bradley will marry again to writer Sally Quinn in 1978. They really want a home in the Hamptons. And they look at every house and every house and, oh, they just can't find it. But Big Edie Beal passes away in 1977, leaving Grey Gardens to Little Edie. And a large tribe of raccoons. Oh, God. 32 cats in the home. They just leave bread out there, like raccoons living in the walls. The home flaps in the breeze. It is in bad, bad condition. The real estate agent who was showing Ben Bradley and Sally Quinn around the Hamptons it's like, I'll do a lot to me. I'll do anything to make a sale, but I'm not going in that house with you. If you want to go look at it, that's fine. But I'm not walking in there with you. So Sally Quinn goes to visit the house and there's little Edie who pirouettes and says, all it needs is a little paint. <laughs> and crashes through the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but Sally loves it. She walks in and she's like, this is the, this is the loveliest house I've ever seen. Now, keep in mind to restore it. They had to take out every floorboard and every piece of wall to get the animal smell out. Mm -hmm. She'll say about the house when they buy it. Inside, the cat smell was overpowering. The floor was part dirt. The ceiling was caving in. Raccoons peered at me through the rafters. Uh Some 20 cats scurried as we entered each room. Still, I thought it was the prettiest house I'd ever seen. They buy this monstrosity. With the condition, it's an 1897 build at 6,000 square feet. The Beals buy it in 1923, arts and crafts style. It's a gorgeous home. Ben and Sally buy it for $220,000, $225,000. Well, 
with the promise that they restore the estate to its 1897 arts and crafts splendor. They're not allowed to raise the property. They're not allowed okay. to tear it down and start over. You've got to start with what they're here. Most of the furnishings in the house or were when they were there came from the attic. They had to completely refurbish everything, but just an amazing little piece of history. Okay. So they put in tennis courts and a swimming pool. Oh, the day that they close on the house, Sally and her mom go to the house. Then <laughs> they're in the sunroom, which is all crumbling. And this old woman comes up to the sunroom door and Sally Quinn's like, it's a tear. It's a cold November day. And she's like, who are you? This lady's like, I'm Lois. Big Edie sent me. She's got a message for you. Big Edie's been dead (laughs) for a few years, but she's like, yeah, Big Edie has a message. She wants you to know that she chose you to buy this house Hmm. and uh, everything's going to go fine in your renovation. She's watching out for you. And your husband covered up a murder. I mean, kind of. Uh, big Edie, I didn't know this until today, was a big fan of Tarzan movies, which accounts for an, uh, like the overgrownness and the jungle feeling of the gardens at Great Gardens. Such a fantastic story. Okay. So they buy the house, 78. They restore it. Live in it all the way up to 2017. Ben Bradley passes away in 2014 and Sally's like, I, it's... Too much to keep up, yeah. Or too much, too sad. So in February 2017, Great Gardens does go on the market for the first time since 1979. That $225,000 property went on the market for $18 million. It was sold for fifteen point five in December 2017. And that's how one paragraph of Dominic Dunn can get me to a whole bunch of a story. That's the story of Mary Pinchot Meyer and the CIA and secret diaries and great gardens. I just, I don't buy it that there was a secret diary because a journalist wouldn't, like a journalist wouldn't go through this thing all about an affair and blah, 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 and not be like, this is my Pulitzer. Like, I just, it's hard for me to You don't believe. think Ben Bradley was working for the CIA too? You're assuming he's a legit journalist who isn't involved in that organization. I'm sorry, I don't know that for a fact, but if you're a journalist and you get that kind of info, I certainly don't think you turn it over to James Jesus Angleton. That's what I'm saying. If you get that- Unless you're in the agency too. I mean, that would be one additional explanation. The other is that there just wasn't a juicy, juicy diary. (laughs) You haven't even mentioned my very fashionable- and functional tinfoil hat that I've been wearing this whole time to record. Yes. <laughs> I have not. It's a good looking hat. Dunners, I should snap a picture for you because. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Dun and Dun. That is the fascinating life and mysterious death of Mary Pinchot Meyer. Peter Janney's book is excellent. Nina Burley's book is excellent. There's a bunch of stuff out there's, there. There's a film adaptation either in the works or, you know, Murder on the Towpath or something that's in the works. I I'll, I should have looked that up before opening my mouth. Yeah, we'll find it. I haven't seen that one, okay. but I have read the other books about it. It's a fascinating case to me. Sure. It really is a fascinating little slice. And I had no idea that Dunn even had a few sentences on it. Sure. And that's done and done for today. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh. Thanks for wandering down the hall and joining us. And thank you 
dear curious listeners, for joining us as well. We will be back with another exciting episode of Done and Done in Short Order. Y'all have a tremendous week. And until we talk again, stay curious, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.